Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Troiano, joined always by Stephen Canestracy. Hello. This is episode 36, and today we are speaking with Andrew Kershaw. Andrew Kershaw is with Queen Victoria's Consort over in the UK. He plays tuba and ophiclides. He's a historical brass performer. Uh, he also collects instruments and was the former principal tuba with the Opera House in Santiago, Chile. So we are super excited to have the opportunity to show you our discussion with Andrew Kershaw today and to celebrate our one year anniversary. Yeah. We were able to release the first episode of the Early American Brass Band Podcast about a year ago from the release of this episode. So thank you to all of our listeners who have been with us since the beginning. If you're fresh to listening to the show, there is a year's worth of podcast for you to listen to before this. <laughs> so feel free to go back and uh, and browse our previous episodes. But we can't thank you enough for, for the support in the community that we've received over this last year. It's been uh, an honor and a privilege and a joy for Stephen and I to have the opportunity to meet so many people across the country and to help uh, connect different performers, listeners, connoisseurs of early American brass band throughout the country. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, definitely. And I would echo everything that Chris just said. Uh, we're very fortunate to, you know, have the opportunity to interview a lot of people and kind of, you know, spread this unique little pocket of American musical history um, that is often overlooked, uh, we feel at least, <laughs> in, uh, you know, in music education so you know we're trying to do our part and spread the word about something that we're both pretty passionate about and the support has been fantastic uh over the past year and we've really enjoyed learning some new skills and producing a show that uh, started out a little out of our comfort zones i think for both of us but uh you know over the past year we've gotten a lot we hope at least <laughs> better at it and more comfortable you know on a microphone so um we thank you for everything over the past year and look forward to more time with you. Okay, back to business. Hmm. If you like the show, <laughs> you can support us on Patreon and Teespring. We're also on social media and YouTube and our website, eabbpodcast.com has a lot of resources and show notes for every episode. So there's the housekeeping. If you're a longtime listener, you know all that. If you're new to the show, uh, go check us out on social media and uh, on the internet, online. We have a website, it's great. <laughs> Without further ado, here is our one-year anniversary episode with Andrew Kershaw. Enjoy. Thank you so much to Andy Kershaw for coming on to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. We're super excited that you're taking time out of your day today to speak with us and share some of your knowledge and experience. So thank you very much. My absolute pleasure. We normally start these interviews with a little bit of a historical biography for our guests. So can you maybe give us a little bit of your background and kind of what brought you into this world of early brass? Sure. Um, I, I was... I was very lucky to to grow up in an area of uh, the UK in Bedfordshire, just outside of London, just north of London, where there was um, a thriving youth music scene. Um, just to give you an idea that the, the small county in which I grew up in had five county youth orchestras and three county bands that all were full. You really had to graft for your place, no matter how young you were, 
Mm. And, and it was something that every young musician wanted to do. And, and at the age of nine, I saw a tuba being played in a concert and really knew that that's what I wanted to do. And in the tiny little village where I lived, there were already six other tuba players. This is in a rural little village in the middle of nowhere. So learning a brass instrument wasn't um, wasn't unique. It wasn't unheard of. It was really encouraged. And I had free music lessons and uh, encouraging parents who, who weren't musicians, but who really encouraged me to, to do it, took me to band rehearsals, lugged a tuba to school before I could, could manage to carry the thing. Um, <laughs> and then... Um, and then I started having my, my lessons at a, a junior conservatoire and all of the uh, major conservatoires in the UK have a junior department on uh, a Saturday. Um, so you can have your lessons there, you can play in some fantastic bands and orchestras. Uh, and if you want to, they help you prepare for, for music college and conservatoire uh, applications, which uh, is, is really what I wanted to do. Uh, and during my time studying um, before I was 18, um something happened uh, which i think we'll probably get onto a bit later there was an instrument found uh, during the renovation of the royal opera house covent garden and Ophiclide, that had um been forgotten all about and uh, was was found languishing in a box uh, and and i knew about this um from a really young age and it really captivated me but i sort of had that in the back burner Mm-hmm. and just worked hard at playing the tuba and loved it and uh, got a place to study at the Royal Academy of Music um, and then a postgraduate place at Trinity College of Music and then straight away into uh, a job at the Opera House in Santiago in Chile. But during my time studying at the Royal Academy, I realised that I had the opportunity to start learning period instruments as well and that's that's where that really kicked off. Awesome. So nice. was that mostly just on Ophiclide or did you get to experiment with some other early brasses during that time too? Yeah. So the Academy offered me uh, second study lessons on Ophiclide and Serpent with Steve Wick, Stephen Wick, um, who is, were very established right at the beginning of sort of the revival of these instruments in the sixties and seventies um, playing on, you know, LSO recordings where suddenly people thought, let's, let's get the Ophiclide back involved. Um, <laughs> But at that time, it really was a case of um, symphony orchestras using the Ophiclide or the Serpent where it was called for. And there was still quite often the call for players to, 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 to play an original instrument surrounded by modern instruments, which I can tell you is one of the things I find most scary and worrying and something I'd rather not do too often um, <laughs> because you're on the back foot straight away. Uh, so really... Um, sure. I was encouraged to learn the standard rep, really, the standard orchestral rep, but also that the, the Ophiclide specifically could be used as a parlour instrument. And, um, you know, we've got some fantastic evidence of it being used as such. Uh, and that's where my journey sort of looking back into that evidence mm-hmm. really started. You know, if I was going to play an Ophiclide, I wanted to play music that perhaps people had done so on that instrument for, you know, back in the day. And in Victorian um, higher society and the the upper classes, these instruments were very much used um, just as as a pastime, um, either after dinners or Saturday afternoons, Sunday afternoons in their parlours. Literally the the room, you know, the the drawing room or the parlour being a room off from where they'd have had dinner. And instruments like the ballad horn and the ophiclide were frequently played by 
very fine often amateurs that that just you know wanted some after dinner entertainment you know off Clyde and a cigar yeah yeah there you go that doesn't sound too bad right about now no absolutely <laughs> uh did your involvement in sax horns and and piston early brasses pop up around that time too or was that kind of a later interest that developed for you oh that's that's been a, a later interest um and something that's really now uh driving me to to do more of i think what i suddenly realized um about five years ago is that the the chamber music and the opportunity to play chamber music on these instruments was was an amazing thing uh the sound was quite unique these instruments like the saxophones that you talked about they were always intended uh, to be played as a family group mm-hmm. um you, you know um the, the the british brass band that we have today um is is really a set of sax horns with cornets and trombones um these instruments were designed to be either small ensemble or chamber ensemble or family ensemble um instruments mm-hmm. um, and when you play them together um they they take on a whole new resonance and a whole new sound world of of their own and as soon as i put queen victoria's consort together um, and we started playing on these instruments or even mixing the piston instruments like the cornet uh, with, with the trombone and the, the ophiclide, you suddenly get into this sound world where you can make so many colours with these instruments and, and maybe their slight inadequacy, shall we say, given their historical nature, um, is, is all overtaken by the fact that you just hear this wonderful colour and this wonderful sound that, that mm-hmm. sort of set me set me alight and made me want to research and hear more yeah yeah how would you describe that that more period brass sound compared to a modern sound i think it's quite direct i think um historically people have been obsessed about the fact that these instruments are quieter i don't think that's necessarily quite the case um they can be very very present I think we, we get confused between volume and presence. Um, mm. You only have to look into the writing of Elgar, who writes four and five fortes and four and five pianissimos for the for the brasses. Um, if if you played those dynamics in a modern symphony orchestra on my fabulous, you know, handmade inertial C tuba or whatever else you happen to be playing, mm. you, you you'd be getting a lot of grief from the conductor and and quite rightly so whereas these instruments can be very present without having that width of sound that sort of engulfs the other instruments or the strings or or a vocalist so you can play much much wider dynamic contrasts i mean i have to give a shout out to susan addison who plays in our group on trombone who occasionally plays so quietly on the period trombone that we all have to say look sue that's amazing but we just can't (laughs) We can't, we can't get down to your amazing pianissimo. But to hear that, you know, that's it's electric, you know. And all of those points, I, I think they're the things that, you know, it's it's why would somebody get in a vintage or veteran car and do the London to Brighton run, full well knowing that it's going to break down on the first hill. Um, but they're going to have a great time along the way. You know, they're going to love every minute of that vintage run. For sure, for sure. Yeah. So, so we've mentioned now Queen Victoria's a few times now up to this point. Can you maybe give us a little bit background of what that group is and when and why you decided to form it? So Queen Victoria's Consort is um, a quartet or quintet usually, uh, though plans are uh, afoot to, to try and do something with a larger group um, of 
like-minded people, I think, is the most important thing to say, like myself, who, who want to get the sounds and the sights. Let's not forget these instruments are sculptural and quite beautiful to look at as well, mm-hmm. of these instruments into the public domain. Um, we talked, uh, when I formed the group, I, I literally just spoke to the people who I knew I loved their playing and I knew I loved their company. So that was how it formed. There was yeah, no there was yeah. no hardship in bringing those wonderful people together. Um, and uh, myself, Robert Van Ryn and Tim Hawes on cornets, um, Susan Addison on trombone and Jeremy West, uh, who, who is, you know, one of the leading lights in, in, in the world of cornet uh, forming um, uh, forming His Majesty Sackbutts and Cornets some 38 years ago now, mm-hmm. um, but playing on replica instruments. This is his first foray into playing on, you know, real instruments from the period in a group. Um, I also wanted to form a group that took things very seriously in terms of producing quality music, but not in terms of engaging with our audience. Um, we, unless we're asked specifically not to for maybe a formal event, um, we, we always perform in Victorian costume. Um, we perform music of the era, but that's been specifically arranged for the group for the main part. Um, A lot of Mendelssohn's music, a lot of music by Prince Albert, of course, Queen Victoria's husband, which is wonderful music, was never intended for brass instruments, but works beautifully uh, because it was often intended for keyboard or for vocal ensembles. Mm -hmm. It works beautifully on brass instruments. So we have um, Robert Van Ryn, who's in the group, and a colleague of mine, Alan Gout, who has tirelessly uh, arranged fun music that would have been heard at the time that we can play on our instruments and also in doing so um arrange them in a way where we can really show off Hmm. the instruments that we're playing on yeah so was this a a group that recently formed together how long ago did this the queen victoria's form uh we, we formed in uh 2016 Okay. Um, and it was a slightly, like with any of these things, it's a, a slightly sort of slow start because you find your way um, in the world. There there are uh, sort of two other established ensembles just in the UK doing something similar. Mm-hmm. Um, but our unique selling point, if you want to call it that, although, uh, you know, it's just a unique point in my opinion, um, mm-hmm. is that we have this uh, amazing collection of instruments between us and through my collection. Um, that's almost an in-house collection that if you if you've seen something on the website that you think wow i've never seen a sudrophone before the likelihood is that at one of our concerts or in one of our recordings you're going to hear that as well um you know we we want to do that so after a little while of sort of figuring our direction out we really um i think we were really busy from about three years ago four years ago in public engagements um for 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 museums the wonderful london transport museum have have events that are attended by thousands of people that we've played for Mm -hmm. um so engaging with the public uh not necessarily sitting in a studio and recording another version of the avald on historical instruments is uh is the direction that we we really wanted to go in and, and that's that's what we've been lucky enough to do are there any of those types of pieces, though, that were written originally for brass that you guys do play in your repertoire, or is it all originally arranged not in brass music? No, no, no. There are pieces that we do, and there are pieces that we um, will will continue to do. There's uh, some of the bell on um, 
music and 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 some of the Aval quintets. They are they are fantastic and they're they're wonderful pieces of music. Um, whether or not they suit an audience that just want to hear some music rather yeah. than an audience that really want to hear that music um, played. You know, you've got to remember that um, the the Wallace Collection, the, the, who I grew up listening to playing these instruments and the the Kafartha band recording that they made you know this is relatively a long time ago now uh, and in mm-hmm. fact lots of um progress has been made in research into 19th century music as to what instruments that music should be played on um you know there's a lot of insight oh well this this aval should be played on the ophiclide you know i heard a lot of aval played on the ophiclide when i was growing up I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Um, mm. There's there's always going to be contention where people are doing research. Mm. Um, but the, the likelihood is that people would have used the most modern instruments to hand. And the spread of these instruments was, you know, it's a wonderful thing. It's like it's a cottage industry that just sort of crept across the country. And you'd have villages in deepest, darkest Dorset who didn't know that um, let's say church West gallery bands had been extinct for 10 years because no one had told them and they hadn't left their village. So they didn't know. (laughs) So (laughs) suddenly someone comes along and says, Hey, why are you still playing that serpent? That, that, that went extinct, you know, 10 years ago, there's this brilliant thing called an Ophiclide or a, or a Saxhaw, you know? Yeah. That's a really interesting point. I guess we, in the modern day and age kind of forget about some of the, the isolation that was still present, you know, back, back in the 19th century for sure, and how that would have impeded some of the spread of ideas and the, the evolution of some type of ensembles and music. Yeah, and, and the thing that happened, obviously, alongside the evolution of our brass instruments is, is the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got uh, travel by train happening a lot more. Um, you've got um, people are able to, eventually towards the end of the Victorian period, they're, they're sending notes by cable, by wire. Um, And also you've got photographs um, Mm -hmm. becoming uh, not common necessarily, but certainly um, happening a lot more often. Um, And so we do have this uh, resource. We have this wonderful resource, um, something I'm passionate about making sure that we we keep hold of and we we treasure um, of photographs and of actual evidence of what people were playing, you know, concert programs. Um, I mentioned uh, an Ophiclide being found at, Covent Garden and now I have in my collection original programs from Covent Garden promenade concerts featuring Samuel Hughes playing that very Ophiclide and we know what he played on it Uh, he was down as his party piece seems to have been oh ruddier than the cherry so Hmm. we should as Ophiclide players we should all know how to play that piece because it was being played at public concerts by the most well-known Ophiclide player who was in in the UK Yeah. yeah yeah that's a great point yeah yeah it's it's interesting to to think of like um you know music as the performance of it rather than like the written down on the on the page because i feel like a lot of times we get caught up in like when we're having these conversations about like what instruments to play certain things on we can get caught up in like what the page says that it that the instrument should be like what's in the top left hand corner (laughs) and not really like what historically like people were playing it on because to your point about playing it on the most modern instrument i mean that makes total logical sense but until you said that i never really had thought of it that way before you know there's a there's the most uh 
burning row and i say row in big inverted commas because it may be you know it gets a few people riled on facebook in a very tiny community <laughs> about this wonderful word chimbasso which uh, which just seems to set the uh, touch paper alight for every researcher and performer going because right. um because in 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 the modern day world if i'm doing a film session and i'm asked to bring a chimbasso it's basically just a big contrabass trombone with valves and that's fine that's it everyone expects that's what it'll be but um i'm sitting here surrounded by maybe four instruments that could have all quite happily been referred to as chimbassos um at the time they were being written for um and one is made out of wood and in sort of euphonia uh, c above euphonium pitch the other is made out of metal in tuba shape but trombone bore and in double b flat with four piston valves and these instruments were made only maybe 20 years apart mm -hmm. and quite possibly played on exactly the same repertoire the yeah. only thing mm -hmm. we do know is that verdi did not want his music to be played on a tuba or bombard um, so rather than arguing about what a chimbasso is, I think we just need to say, well, as long as it's not a tuba and it's an instrument historically correct to the time, then, you know, but hey, that'll that'll set a few more touch papers lit too. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's more inclusive. I, I do like that uh, that yeah. approach to it for sure. Mm -hmm. And I guess not, not on the chimbasso train, but a similar kind of point um, is following the evolution of uh, Symphony Fantastique with it being what originally serpent and ophiclide and then two sure. ophiclides and now tuba right sometimes with uh you know maybe a c and a and an f tuba or something you know kind of uh offsetting it like that also yeah, yeah um, oh gosh absolutely that's the biggest uh documented evidence that we've got to show how quickly this evolution was happening of sound world and play you know and if if berlioz hears his music performed um on on two ophiclides and and it's it sounds more like how he wanted you know at least in Berlioz's lifetime he went back and adjusted his scores and in fact the earliest um Berlioz score we have he actually predicted the fact or or potentially predicted the fact that the serpent ophiclide duo wouldn't necessarily work he says words to the effect um that if the church serpent doesn't play in tune or doesn't work with the ophiclide then two ophiclides are to be used mm -hmm. um the next score is for two ophiclides. So did he hear that it didn't work? I, that there is no doubt in my mind, because I've performed it on Serpent and Ophiclide, and I know there are some spectacular YouTube videos of it being performed on Serpent and Ophiclide and being impeccably in tune. Mm -hmm. um, but the Serpent being used is a reproduction, so maybe at the time, you know, that was another contention. But yeah. but that score, having a timeline and, and seeing it move through to tuba and seeing Berlioz use sax horns in his um, uh, Trojans uh, score and, and, and also then seeing Wagner use Ophiclide and Serpent in earliest operas, um, but then going right the way through to insisting on contrabass tuba, which was just, you know, in its early stages of invention and inventing instruments to fill the gap as well. These composers, they knew what was going on. We have countless copies of catalogues from the day um, listing instruments in all manner of keys. You know, one of the um, things that was always bounded around when I was learning was that the the G bass trombone was unique to British symphony orchestras. Well, 
I have a, a Gautreau catalogue from 1878, and there's there's a G-based trombone listed in there. So hmm. why why and, and F alto trombones and Ophiclides with nine, ten, and eleven keys. You know, let's not forget that when I was learning, it was well. You know, the serpent had no keys, and then the Ophimonoclide had one, and then gradually the Ophiclide had more keys added to it. No, absolutely not. If if somebody couldn't afford an eleven key Ophiclide, they bought the ten key Ophiclide because yeah. it's cheaper. You know, we have the documents yeah, now sure. to say it saved you this number of francs. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. While we're, uh, while we're talking about instruments, I have um, your, the Queen Victoria's Concert Facebook page pulled up. Um, sure. And you guys have recently been showing off a lot of the instruments that you use in the group. Can you maybe give us a rundown of maybe um, get kind of your most uh, common configuration uh, of what, what kind of instruments you guys use? Sure. So normally we go out with two cornets, a horn, a trombone and a, a tuba or an ophiclide uh most commonly let's say ophiclide um two reasons for that one is that the sound blend of those uh four or five instruments depending on whether we have one or two cornets on um just works really really well mm -hmm. um and and okay not historically correct but we've even played up to sort of um some early marches like maybe Colonel Bogey or, or Liberty Bell using Ophiclide on the bass part and it sounds fine. If we're if we're doing a concert um maybe at a public event, the Ophiclide just immediately grabs people's attention. And and then Definitely. once their attention's grabbed, we can talk to them about what we love. Mm -hmm. They they yeah. just wanna they just want to know more, you know? Um but 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 if it requires it we'll go out with tuba or contrabass sax horn. Um we then will change to cornet down to through family of sax horns if that's the music that we're we're working on um and i have a a, a set of adolf sax sax horns that i've been very very lucky to to put together seven instruments and then an eight that's owned by jeremy west um uh, cornet contralto upright sax horn alto another alto that jeremy owns uh, a baritone sax tromba an e-flat contrabass and a b-flat contrabass uh, and that's the that's the big dream is to now get this family set into a recording. Uh, it's been slightly put off by COVID. Um, but within the set of instruments that we use, what we found is that certain instruments of that type work best for certain pieces of music. So maybe for certain pieces of music, we'll feature the valve trombone or certain pieces of music. Um, Robert plays the Arban Cornet variations, uh, the uh, Cornet Polka variations as his sort of party piece with the group. Um, and one particular Stolzl valve Cornet that he owns just works for him for that rep better. Mm -hmm. So it's there on the side. And if we play that piece, up it comes. Um we try to be accurate to the period of music that we're playing. And then we also try to be accurate to the instrument that most suits the sound world that we're playing in. Um, because as I said previously, we're not um, having to be accurate to what's written on a score mm. that allows us to experiment and say, okay, well, we'd love to use, um, we'd love to use a, uh, a contrabass sax horn in this piece. Is it going to work better than the Ophiclide? And sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. And we don't have to hold to that, you know. Yeah, yeah. That that's something that I love hearing of 
the way you guys are approaching your performance and your music, it, it ties directly into a lot of the research that I'm currently doing for my doctorate with a word that comes up often uh, being authenticity. Um, we've, we've already talked a lot about your guys' repertoire and something that's been sticking with me since you've said it is how you say that you view the instruments themselves as visual sculptures. And it seems like the if there's a kind of a primary drive or something at the, the front of your guys' mind when you're performing is to get the instruments in front of audiences and the instruments are kind of the stars to your performance. Um, with, with, with all of that in mind, then also, uh, well, actually, it, it, any, any comments on, <laughs> on that? And then I'll ask my follow-up. <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I think you're, you're absolutely right. And I think, um, I think uh, nobody should be um, offended is maybe a strong word, but we, we don't mind being the, the, we don't mind being the conduit, shall we say, in which we get these instruments across. I mean, if um, people are interested in these instruments, I mean, you can go to some pretty wonderful museums around the around Europe and around you know, the States. You know, you can go to the Metropolitan Museum and see serpents in glass cabinets that people want to go and look at. And you can go to the Musical Instrument Museum um, in, in Edinburgh and see glass cabinets full of musical instruments. That's that's great. Uh, for us, it's an extension of a, a living museum where it's like, here, here, here you have the instrument and it's a really beautiful one. And yes, of course, I have to say before some of the conservers out there go, oh, my God, they're using these instruments. You know, I don't, for example, use my absolutely priceless Cofet Offy Monoclide on an outside gig, um, you know, <laughs> yeah. with thousand people around. Of course I don't. Right. But to, to a certain extent, we have to get these instruments out and being played. I have the most wonderful repairer and maker, Nicholas Perry, who sort of works with me a lot to bring some of these instruments back from a state where you would just assume, <laughs> you know. Um, but then other instruments, some of the wooden instruments that I own, they've got repairs that are nearly as old as the instrument. These instruments yeah. Yeah. were designed to be played in a parade ground or on a cobbled street in France. So mm -hmm. they are delicate, but we have to get them out there. And if by playing them and by people seeing and hearing them, they, they are intrigued and they want to learn more, that's exactly what we're very happy to do for them. For sure. It, it seems like your guys' presentation is similar to a group here in the States, the Chestnut Brass Company where the, the presentation is uh, very instrument focused and the repertoire is fun. And it's almost like a, a live touring instrument museum, you know, where you get to hear and see the instruments in performance rather than just, you know, behind glass. But something that that's interesting that I know Chestnut does is they perform usually in all concert black. And you mentioned earlier that you guys do have a Victorian appearance that that when when permitted you guys <laughs> try to to wear can you maybe talk a little bit about that before we uh jump sure. into some other topics here sure yeah i mean um we just sort of threw it out there as a bit of fun when we started are we going to do this in you know victorian sunday best as we call it you know frock case top hats or mm -hmm. um you know uh yeah and we just couldn't think of a reason why not, you know, we're, we're presenting some fun. And also, um, as I said before, you know, there are other ensembles in, in the UK that, that do a very good job of playing early instruments, not just brass instruments, all sorts of instruments, you know, um, 
but but maybe only some of the sort of city weights bands that exist um that 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 do maybe corporate events in costume um and, and i just think the public love to see it um we we enjoy we enjoy it. it's fun for us as well um yeah. uh, I, I also I, i'm really privileged to play in a group called the london serpent trio which was established in 1976 um and by no um coincidence that group was established on april the first april fool's day 1976 um uh but but that group uh really led the way uh in terms of doing something historical but not totally historically informed a bit like us that there was never any historical um serpent ensemble they were always played one serpent or a couple of serpents as part of another ensemble and the serpent trio play a lot of music from the Victorian period and before and, and some modern music we've just had some music commissioned um but they play it as a serpent ensemble and in full serpent dress as they call it same mm-hmm. as us Sunday dress and it just is a bit more fun you know we we understand that there is a lighter side to what we do because despite everybody's best efforts and and working as hard as any top musician can you're never going to sound like Empire Brass or like, um, you know, the Chicago Symphony Brass on on a set of, you know, 150-year-old instruments, Mm -hmm. 200-year-old instruments. mentioned that um the instruments you guys you you guys are lucky to have kind of amassed an in-house collection of instruments that you guys use um with the consort um are there some gems in there or you know some favorites that you got i'm sure you know each player has their you know personal favorite horn Uh, like you mentioned one of the cornet players uh with the with the arbin solo but um maybe maybe if you can kind of go and go through maybe and and give some you know, some player favorites and and the horns that you guys really like to use and some more specifics about those? Sure. Um, well, yeah, we've uh, it, we've got our own personal instruments that we use. And then I've I've personally built up a collection that that I'm really happy for the group to use. Um, the only caveat with my collection is that it has to be playable and it has to be usable within the group um otherwise you 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 very quickly become a collector am i a collector yes maybe but you know there has to be a cutoff point you know um so yeah um firstly as i mentioned we do have this wonderful set of instruments by adolf sax they date between 1846 and 1864 uh, the oldest being the E flat contrabass, and uh, it's um, it's through playing these instruments that I think I learned the most because they have their challenges. Um, apart from the the B flat um, cornet uh, that's forward facing, they all have Sax's version of Berliner Pumpen valves. Then they're, they're not a true Berliner Pumpen because Sax was always slightly modifying the instruments. Mm-hmm. The uh, yeah. the E flat contrabass is actually a the the earliest one is a, is a true Berliner pump and the rest have Adolf Sachs's variation on a theme. Um, the instruments are all in good playing condition, but they do have their 
you know they have their quirks so we have to be careful to choose pieces of music that suit them um we do have a, a virtual concert coming up which i'll talk a bit about later and we've got a piece in there uh the wedding march by mendelssohn where we're playing on four um of those instruments and we do also have a piece on our website where we're playing on a, a different four of those instruments some some music by um by by uh Prince Albert. Um, so the Adolf Sachs instruments are—they almost feel alive. They almost feel like they've got a little bit of mm. that, you know, craftsman. Maybe I'm romanticising it, but um, my father is a clockmaker. My father's in his mid-eighties now, and he's a clockmaker. And mm. I grew up sort of watching him uh, make wheels for antique grandfather clocks and the like. And um, you know, you can just imagine some guy sitting on a bench with flat brass. Uh, every single thing on those Adolf Sachs instruments is made from sheet brass. And you can just imagine a guy sitting on a bench yeah. with a load of flat brass and gradually over a course of time, the flat brass becoming these instruments, which are you, you guys are lucky enough to see behind me, but that mm. anyone wanting to see can see on our website. Um, so after the sax instruments, um, then uh, I've got a couple of cornets that we've featured on our um facebook page recently um there's a disc valve cornet by curler um and hmm. I, I i'm not sure but it's certainly the only disc valve cornet that i've heard playing recently um uh, and that can be played very well it hmm. it, it um it, it's perfectly playable instrument it just seems to have survived magnificently well and the uh, the way that the disc valves are made with two flat pieces of metal touching basically they're on self-destruct if a disc valve cornet is played too much it's 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 wearing down the yeah. brass on brass all the time so True. we have to be a little bit careful with these instruments but they are there to be played uh, and also a, a beautiful um cornopian uh with Stelzel valves by pace that i was lucky enough to find um complete in its original box it, it literally mm. doesn't look like this instrument has ever been played it's it's wow. a remarkable survivor and, and it plays very very well um then after those instruments um and, and much more sort of tugging at my heartstrings because they're the instruments that i play are, are the serpents and the ophiclides and bass horns that i've i've managed to uh to to collect together um examples by some phenomenal makers such as michaud um and uh think little oddities like like the ophimonoclide and the serpent forvey that that are less common i mean there are examples in playing um hands but less common um and more often uh in 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 museums over in the uk do you are you guys uh, avid users of ebay is that how you're getting these horns or since you're over in europe are are the historical instruments more abundant or more uh available are they popping up in attics more often than maybe they are here yeah, it's, do you know, it's a really frustrating one because um, in a way, yeah, I mean, stuff does pop up on eBay and often um, it's then very hotly contested, maybe sometimes as much as if it was in one of the big European auctions like Vichy or or uh, or, or on a sort of more um, instrument-specific auction. Um the other thing that I find really difficult with buying instruments is it's always knowing how much to spend on the instrument if you don't know whether it's a playable instrument. Um, some of the restoration costs are 
rightly quite high because you're paying for somebody's time to restore the instrument. Um, and some instruments, if they're that fragile, they probably do need to be conserved rather than restored. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've had a real mixture, really. Um, th- there are a couple of very, very well-to-do and well-known um, dealers of fine musical instruments in, um, in in France, in Paris, and and one in the UK. And I've bought instruments from all of them. Uh, if I've been lucky enough to be in a position to buy something uh, that's already fully restored, um, but but obviously you know we're we're funding this. Well, I'm funding this through being a being a classical musician. So you know you have to have the funds available when the instrument becomes available. Yeah. Um, I've had a couple of very very lucky finds on eBay. Um, I'm sure all instrument collectors get their lucky breaks now and again. Things that have been um, uh, have a cornerphone, a bass cornerphone by Besson, that the advert was something along the lines of, you know, uh, I think this is an old euphonium question mark, question mark, but there were no spaces or punctuation in the description. Yeah. So it didn't, didn't pop up in a, like the usual collector's no, search and, results and, and stuff? No, yeah. and he had, it, he had it on a buy now um, for something like 300 pounds, about oh. 500 US. And... Um, I, I just got home after a concert and couldn't sleep and, you know, was doing a bit of searching on eBay and everything else and, uh, and just got lucky. Um, and that instrument turned out to play really, really beautifully. Wow, nice. uh, not so much in my hands, the mouthpiece is a French horn mouthpiece in there. Yeah, there um, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think, um, I think we have to distinguish ourselves because more often than not collectors have much larger resources for money um for example um there's there's a very very beautiful painted baudouin serpent in the met in new york and a a colleague of mine a friend of mine an instrument dealer was paid on commission to go to the auction where that was uh, in one of the london auction houses and bid with a fairly unlimited you know budget Mm-hmm. Uh, and given a commission to go and do so so wow. if somebody like myself had turned up to to win that instrument you're you're on a you're not going to get it you know you just yeah. you're yeah, not yeah. going to compete against a collector and that instrument's probably a one-off it's beautifully painted it's quite fragile would it suit my collection absolutely not and not for the sort of money that it went for mm-hmm. um but then other instruments you know other instruments do pop up uh, in attics i i did I do have a a, a, a Gautreau tuba, bombard and saxophone, whatever you want to call it, an E-flat contrabass tuba um, from about 1890, which is not a massively rare instrument, but it just has survived really well and plays nicely. Hmm. Um, and somebody moved into a house that had a shed and it was just left in the shed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, and that instrument's playing really nicely. And as I say, it's not a particularly rare instrument, but it's of our period and it plays hmm. well. So I think that's another distinction is between the, the sort of really rare instruments that I'm in competition with a collector to the, to the instruments which are of our period, but perhaps were made in huge numbers i mean every every brass band in the uk probably still has instruments in their cupboards dating back to the turn of the century to the turn of you know to the turn of the 20th century Mm -hmm. so those instruments are abundant 
Um, but most of them are very well built and still in very good playing order. So you you play on the you know on the lower end of the of the group um and with the uh, instrument not the quality right <laughs> yes the... <laughs> exactly the the instrument range not the uh not the playing ability or playing quality um, all i ever <laughs> thought you meant right. <laughs> <laughs> so so ophiclides are something that that fall uh, into your wheelhouse um so what uh uh, you know, to simplify it, what's the deal with those? Where did they come from? <laughs> well, you know, yeah. this is such a great topic because um, the Ophiclide, it was something that really hung around in the UK. Um, we've spoken briefly that uh, this was a sort of real time of industrial revolution and, and instrument evolution going hand in hand. Um, and, and people often sort of say, or I heard it said for a long time when I was studying that, you know, you had this church serpent, which just is is a long tube with six finger holes. And then as the serpent developed, people added more keys. And then they, you know, they're examples of serpents with 14 keys. I mean, these instruments couldn't have been viable, really. I mean, I think they're practically speaking, uh, they're a good idea. But how you would, you know, with the very primitive mechanics of the time, how they could ever be fully chromatic and playable, jumping off keys and onto finger holes sounds like a nightmare. And that the evolution through the word Ophiclide coming from the Greek Ophi snake, Clyde key, this, the serpent evolves into the Ophiclide. Um, you know, I'm not sure I still buy into that. I mean, hmm. that's a really great simplified version. Um, and I think one of the things that owning the, um, should we say, the missing link instruments that I do, the Offi Monoclide, the Serpent Fauvet, the Russian Bassoon, um, owning those instruments and seeing for how short a period of time those instruments came about. I mean, a lot of those upright serpents, um, bass horns, were sort of made between 18... 20 to 1840 and and then really weren't continued with um but but the ophiclide was still you know was already establishing itself as a fully chromatic bass horn um in, in the metal terms of the word uh but this use of naming is really confusing because in england the bass horn was a metal instrument with a mixture of keys and um finger holes we've already touched on the thorny subject of chimbasso maybe coming from corno and basso in italian derivation and then in france and the united kingdom we sort of have this parallel um, emerging of the serpent and the ophiclide um the the french um church serpent and the the english military serpent to be played sideways so they could march with it and often with keys and often with a tighter wrap so it could be held across the body through marching i think a lot of it depended on where these instruments were played um i think in the symphonic writing of say mendelssohn where he calls for the serpent in the let's say for example the reformation symphony or st paul calm sea and prosperous voyage as well but they the first two they're religious pieces of music where he's already harking back to a gone age. He's harking back to the Reformation. He's saying, I want a serpent because it makes me think of times gone past. 
Mendelssohn already knew of the English bass horn. There's that fabulous line drawing that I'm sure people will be very familiar with. It's widely available on the internet at the bottom of a letter he drew. And that's the instrument that people assume he wrote for in Midsummer Night's Dream that now people frequently play on the Ophicline mm-hmm. uh, or the tuba. So I think this evolution of those instruments is, I don't think we'll ever get to the point of at what point the Ophiclide sort of pinged out of the the uh, the the uh, sort of evolutionary pool, shall we say. You know, there's lovely T-shirts of um, amoebas crawling out and monkeys becoming human beings. Um, one thing I do have in my collection is a letter um, from Sixth Earl Beecham, uh, the Ligon family. Uh, they're a, a, a family uh, in in the uh, in the UK, um, very wealthy and well-to-do family. And the Sixth Earl was a lay preacher and conservative politician in Parliament. And I have a letter from him, uh, an original letter, that they were planning a church service, and the letter is dated 1860. And he uses the phrase, can I suggest that a serpent or some other such instrument is used to support the voices? Hmm. Now, 1860 seems pretty late, yeah. given that we know the Ophiclide was there and, you know, doing great things. And that's that's wonderful. But the fact that he said serpent or some other such instrument maybe means that he just assumed that that instrument would be called a serpent or people would know that it would be a serpent replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have uh, evidence of competitions being held at Crystal Palace, Ophiclide soloist competitions right to the end of the 1800s, where um, instrument makers like Boozy or Hawks, separate at that point, or Besson, actually gave euphonians to winning Ophiclide performers in an attempt, in a bid, to tempt them away from their as they saw it, outdated instruments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, if somebody's in their 50s or 60s and, and plays an instrument marvellously and then they're suddenly told, well, hang on a minute, that's that's outdated. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I also have a wonderful photo, and I believe copies are available on the internet, um, of the teaching staff at Nella Hall, which is the Royal Military School of Music, hmm. uh, just down the road from me, actually, not far from my house. Um, and... In that shot, Samuel Hughes is is there as the Ophiclite teacher, uh, but as is Arthur Sullivan's father, um, and uh, as the Bombardon uh, and Euphonium teacher. So oh. they're offering both instruments as as available to military musicians at the school. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> it's a hilarious image though of what you said where. Yeah, you're the best Ophiclide player. Here's not an Ophiclide. You would think that yeah. <laughs> that they would want to present them with like a a gold Ophiclide or something. No, no, no. Here, here's a euphonium. <laughs> you'll, you'll you'll much prefer this. It's, yeah. it's great. You know, yeah. um, the, the other aggressive thing, marketing strategy. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that I'm I'm just doing some research at the moment into um, into Punch magazine. Um, I've I've just uh, I've just got a, a huge back catalogue um starting in 1867 and going through to about the 1930s of punch magazines which were released um in, in the uk uh, and um it's a satirical magazine mm-hmm. and 
I've been through every single edition. I've, I've got them in year volumes and leather bound and they're, you know, they're pretty sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've been through every volume and pretty much every volume has at least one, if not two satirical cartoons that features either a picture or a mention of an ophiclide, a tuba or a bombard. Oh, there you go. And, you know, these, these instruments were, which is again, why I don't think we should take ourselves too seriously is, <laughs> you know, at the time they, you know, if somebody wants to, some of these cartoons are fantastic. Um, they're, they're really like, you know, a cartoon about a disturbance or a public uproar. And the mm-hmm. person is always playing a comedy in inverted commas brass instrument yeah, yeah, like the yeah. ophiclide or the or the tuba or the or the bombard mm-hmm. yeah that's funny <laughs> in our last episode we were able to talk extensively to dr ralph dudgeon about the key bugle i know when we had already mentioned that the ophiclide has some kind of gray areas in terms of its origin and its evolution and stuff does it have any connection to the key bugle or are they completely separate type of uh stories as it were no i i think it it, it obviously does i mean um wh- whether you just want to see it as an evolutionary uh link um i think certainly i mean look there's no getting away from the fact that you've got a long tube of metal and you want to find a way of making that tube chromatic you've got to mm-hmm. do something with it you've either got to you've either got to play at the very highest part of its range like the the natural horn or the natural trumpet with no vent holes or you've got to add keys or you've got to obviously when they could you've got to add valves um were these instruments being played simultaneously? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I mentioned the Kafartha band, which is well documented and, and which, you know, maybe 20 years ago, the, the Wallace collection made their recording, The Origin of the Species, which, you know, is a phenomenal, um, a phenomenal recording. And, and of its time, the lots, uh, you know, John Wallace has continued to champion research into moving forward with these instruments. Mm. But the documentation from the Kafartha band um, archives is fantastic because it tells us that piston instruments were played alongside imported rotary instruments were played alongside uh, keyed instruments so this one band in a small part of um of the uk in wales um because it was a privately funded band they just had the instruments that they wanted at the time and maybe the latest or the the, the best ones they felt they could get and ended up having a mixture we you know there are lots of images of village bands around the world where piston instruments and keyed instruments and rotary instruments are all being played at the same time and 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 in a band together Mm -hmm. um i think that having a keyed instrument alongside a a a a a piston valve or rotary valve instrument as long as the pitches kind of work together um and how do we know maybe they didn't maybe i think the level of performance was probably incredibly high much higher than we perhaps started off giving credit for you know Mm -hmm. this old adage of oh i'm sure it sounded much worse back then (laughs) is total nonsense there were unbelievable virtuoso players because the music wouldn't exist uh, that we still rely on heavily the arban and everything else you know there were virtuosic players Mm -hmm. um but was the ensemble playing as rigidly in tune and as perfect as today? I'm willing to bet maybe 90%, but mm. there's tolerances. But was a village band playing with perfect intonation and worrying about which pitch every instrument was at? 
No, because they weren't getting paid to do it. They were they were just entertaining somebody on a village bandstand, you know. And it's not I'm always not happening talking... today. Yeah, and it's not always yeah. happening today either. So if it's no, if it's not perfect but, today, know, then... <laughs> I want to qualify that though in in um, just saying that what that did evolve into though is the the British brass band rather than the village band, which which often had woodwind instruments in as well, which is probably more an evolution from the church West Gallery bands. But the the British brass band, which evolved around uh, the the mining industries and the and the the industries in the UK. Um, is something completely different because those bands always strove because their competition and their performance at co concerts evolved simultaneously. Those bands always strove for and achieved remarkable standards of uh, of, of, of sheer musical, um, you know, acrobatics right from the get go. Do you know when keyed brasses were kind of phased out of that competitive British style brass band uh, competitive scene? from the competitive scene I, they were never used within an ensemble there as okay. i say i know i know of solo competitions where gotcha, they were gotcha. sort of phased out but um the, the the competitive british brass band was always a very much um you you had to have a certain number of players on certain instruments and that stands to this very day uh, but obviously mm -hmm. we you know wonderful music um, was written uh, and a lot of brass bands up and down the uk will still have as, as they call it, yellow music, because that's that's the colour of the paper it's printed on or what's happened to it over the period of time, um, in their filing cabinets that still says sax horn instead of uh, E-flat tenor horn mm. um, and still says bombardon instead of basses or tuba. Mm -hmm. um, and and that's music that, you know, is still played on a Sunday bandstand if you, yeah, if you go definitely. to a park in the UK. Yeah. Was that a standardization of the instrumentation for competitive British brass bands, something that happened in the 19th century, or is that a 20th century codification? No, that's definitely something that happened in the 19th century. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the the fact of having a soprano cornet, um, four solo cornets, repiano, four back row cornets, as we say, seconds and thirds, two of each, um, a flugelhorn, you know, the, the tenor horns, the baritone horns. This is all where the confusion sets up as well in the sax horn family because the British brass band system calls them by names that Adolf Sachs didn't refer to them as. Mm, um, yeah. You know, we refer to the tenor horn. It's an E-flat alto instrument that that my my um, Adolf Sachs instrument even says in hand engraved on the instrument, alto sax horn in E-flat. Um, <laughs> but, but that doesn't stop us Brits uh, calling it the tenor horn. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had a, a previous guest from the Salvation Army bands, and, and we had a, a good laugh about about that as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we 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 just have to. Uh, I suppose it goes along the lines of needing to stamp our authority on having invented it as well. Mm, you know, um, you. but the wonderful thing is that you know that that institution has now spread and through the Salvation Army and through the the um, the other competing bands. You know, so much music has been written uh, and so many fine players. You know, and 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 players like um, Morris Murphy, of course. You know, famous for being in the LSO and first day at work in the LSO being the first star wars film you know back in the 70s oh, um yeah. he, he came from a brass banding background as did many many of the fine symphonic players that we've that we've sort of cultivated
would there be any players you would want to talk about or is that not something that's up sorry to you? historically yeah yeah sorry historic players yeah well i think we we mentioned samuel hughes very briefly mm-hmm. um and uh, his instrument was was as i said discovered um during a renovation of covent garden uh, opera house and one of the trombone players in the opera orchestra tom winthorpe um decided to get that instrument back in playing condition i think it just needed repadding it had been beautifully mm. preserved um and then tom put the most lovely little concert together sort of with a pianist featuring the ophiclide um and playing some repertoire on the ophiclide uh that that samuel hughes played we said about ruddier than the cherry uh, mm. but also you know demonstrating the fact that the ophiclide perhaps had a a hand in development of the saxophone so you know why not play something silly like the pink panther and just say look hey you know <laughs> this sort of led to the development of a really famous instrument that you will all have heard of yeah. um and when tom retired he he knew that i'd sort of got heavily into performance on Ophiclide and uh, research into it and he very graciously gave me his um research material and his concert programs of which there was a lot uh, and as i said there are some original concert programs in there um which which list samuel hughes playing that instrument there's i mean there's a very famous grave to an ophiclide player and also to a serpentist that are in uk graveyards that that feature carvings of uh, a 3d carving of an ophiclide and a, mm. and a um sort of um uh, stonemasoned uh, version of a serpent um, but they don't um, we they don't they're not for players that we know were amazingly active as sort of well-known players mm-hmm. um, I think the the most well-known player that that we need to mention in terms of the UK a player that we know did play Ophiclide and then became a professional tuba player is Harry Barlow who was in the um Halle Orchestra in Manchester um, and he um, he was he also conducted for a while the Besses of the Barn brass band um, who later became the brass band that the, the, the Gregson tuba concerto was written for along with John Fletcher famous mm-hmm. tuba player from the LSO um, and Harry Barlow um, was an interesting character because he had a huge interest in instrument design um and for him it was the the design of the tuba uh i mean harry barlow is credited as being an ophiclide player but um he's most well known for having developed some instruments uh for besson um at the beginning of the 20th century which are regarded as barlow f tubers uh with five valves uh, and a non-compensating system. So he joined the London Symphony Orchestra when it was established in uh, 1904 and very quickly um, became an instrument advisor, really, for Besson, who was making him instruments. So he he very quickly wanted um, not only the latest instrument available, but the next best instrument available. And uh, he also then joined the BBC Symphony Orchestra when it was founded in 1930. And up until 1932, at his death, uh, we believe there were 14 instruments made, of which I think I have the second oldest serial number, um, uh, of increasing size and increasing playability and increasing um, similarity sound-wise to a more modern instrument. 
you know mm. so that's that's one person who at the very beginning of his career is accredited with being an off Clyde player but very quickly led to a huge forward development in in the tuba and the tuba players who were playing for example in the london philharmonic orchestra in the 1960s were still playing on barlow instruments that were made in the 1930s and it was only events like um sir george schulte saying to one tuba player what on earth do you call that well it's my tuba maestro no no you can't play marler on that it's a toy Uh, and that player actually being sacked from the orchestra um because by this point you know conductors especially phenomenal maestros like sir george schulte were were they were in front of the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and they were hearing Arnold Jacobs and you know so this is where this sort of slow burn from the serpents and the bass horns and the ophiclides and the what's a chimbasso and what's a what's a bombardon and a tuba and all this ambiguity suddenly in the space of the 30s through to the 60s the 1960s I should say before we get our centuries confused um, we've gone from an instrument that was developed in the UK, certainly, an instrument that was developed by an Ophiclite player through to the modern symphony orchestra uh, instruments that we still have to this very day. Yeah. I, th- there's another tuba player, an Ophiclide player situation. I can't be sure of exact names of players, but this was a, an occasion that arose because Richter was conducting the first performance of the Ring Cycle at the Royal Albert Hall, mm. and Wagner was present for that um Wagner was present for that uh, occasion yeah. uh, there's a wonderful anecdotal evidence of the fact that Wagner wanted to conduct but apparently Boyle uh, evidence wasn't really up to the job and he'd been told he could conduct some bits uh, and I'm <laughs> assuming by that they sort of picked out bits that you know he could do uh, and apparently sort of sat on a large sofa next to Richter looking truly sort of miffed that he was sort of second fiddle. Um, But for that occasion, a tuba had to be made, an an F tuba, not necessarily what Wagner would have heard in Germany in terms of an F tuba, a bass tuba, or even a contrabass tuba by that point, um, had to be made because the players in the UK orchestra are still relying so heavily on the offercloud. That's interesting. Imagine... uh writing a, a band piece now and being like, yeah, I need a, a, a entirely new kind of tuba for this, this band piece. You know, it's, it's this cool. is, this is what kind of um, intrigues me about instruments like hang drums and that, that have suddenly evolved as brand new instruments in, mm-hmm. in the brass world. I mean, are we seeing Wagner, I suppose? I mean, Wagner uses bass trumpet, contrabass trombone, Wagner tubers, um, Tristan wooden trumpet and those just the ones that I can think of off the top of my head you know all new inventions and also emerging inventions with the contrabass tuba and all of this sort of thing um but but in the brass world do we have um I'm thinking of maybe something like the hecklephone in Strauss but but not in not in the brass department you know mm-hmm. suddenly I suppose because we can rely on the um, technical abilities of the player, composers can now write lower parts or higher parts, and the, the players we we are expected to and rightly to be able to play mm-hmm. that 
that's that's our technical yeah. development whereas if you want to write a new note for a woodwind instrument you're going to have to extend the instrument mm -hmm. yeah, true. um and i think that's why once the brass instrument became fully chromatic with valves i think the the technological advances slowed up and mm -hmm. the musical and technical uh prowess of the players sped up even mm -hmm. even more so even yeah, more right. so that makes sense I think the, the biggest developments lately has just been making them out of plastic at this point. <laughs> yeah, and, and at the end of the day, um, what you have to do then is go back to the to the same format. You know, uh, a, a plastic trombone is still exactly the same dimensions, maybe except for the tolerances of making it out of plastic. Um, I think the only thing that I'd say along that line is the, um, the idea of 3D printed instruments, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and and yeah it's, some uh, it's a, serpents being 3d printed lately yeah yeah absolutely mm. um the work that's come out of the bait collection um uh they've been they've been t uh helping with with getting 3d printed serpent plans that i believe you can now get for free on the internet um mm. one slight thing that amuses me is that i was doing some sums that if you add up the cost of a 3D printer and the electricity it takes to do it over however many days and nights of printing and all of the plastic you need or, or, or materials you need, mm -hmm. um, and you can buy a really, really good original Serpent for £5,000. I think I'd rather have the original. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that kind of transitions us, I think, into maybe our last question, unless there's any follow-ups that Stephen has or anything, Andy, that we neglected to kind of get to, but what advice do you have for maybe music students or musicians looking to get into playing the Ophiclide in terms of maybe some general advice, in terms of period versus reproduction versus mouthpiece selection? Maybe we can kind of get all those pieces of advice into, into one thing here. Sure. Um, I mean, my time as a student, sort of discovering the Ophiclide was was so important for me. I mean, there are four music conservatoires just within London, um, and they all churn out fabulous players every year. And you you walk out of that door and nobody nobody just, you know, suddenly puts your name to the top of the list. And um, for me, being having having something else, you know, building a, a career around uh, some some historical instruments was unbelievably helpful um and i think that if you have um an inclination that you would like to study a period of history relating to that instrument or to study that instrument within its period of history um that, that that's something that could be really beneficial to your playing career and it also will make you think there's a lot of professors out there that including mine that said, oh, no, this will ruin your tuba playing. Um, and actually, I try and treat the instruments completely separately. I, I treat the Ophiclite so so differently from the tuba as if it was a, you know, a, a clarinet or a violin. I, I do not yeah. associate it physically or mentally with the tuba. Um, but the one thing I do associate it with is it really makes you listen. If you haven't got a good set of ears and you or you just choose not to listen to what you're doing or how to, how you fit into the ensemble, the serpent or the ophiclide are, are, are not going to suddenly play in tune um, yeah. because they're going to take a lot of work 
from from your point of view but that's part of the fun that's what i really find maybe a perverse way is is the fun of playing those instruments and certainly the offic light is the one that i've had the most fun playing both in symphonic settings um and ensemble settings and as a soloist um i think in terms of finding an instrument for me it always paralleled with trying to find the best original instrument i could find mm. um when we saw the emergence of a lot of the um chinese made instruments um i think there was a huge emphasis on the fact that you could get something that was good very cheaply and that you kind of got what you paid for what i can see now is that over a period of time these instruments aren't actually that cheap once you've paid for them more often than not had to have work done to them most of them come with a degree of tweaking needed mm -hmm. shall we say um most of them um are made as a copy of the instrument but the thickness of the brass is different so they don't respond in the same way mm. that an original instrument plays let's get this very clear they don't sound the same as an original instrument um okay. so if you are convinced that you're going to be playing in an ensemble with other original instruments then get an original instrument um have fun have fun go to the vichy auction see a couple go for a few thousand or, or 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 even take a chance on one that goes for a few hundred every now and again and i'm talking a few times a year Ophiclides pop up for a few hundred uh pounds so maybe high hundreds to a thousand dollars the okay they need restoring but if you then add maybe five hundred dollars and you're you're giving a craftsman you know a sort of amount spend up to five hundred dollars on getting this as playable as you possibly can there are some wonderful craftsmen in the states wonderful craftsmen in the uk that can get these instruments playing spectacularly mm. well that said if you are playing in if you are a really good amateur player who suddenly finds yourself in a symphony orchestra where the conductor says hey i really fancy trying midsummer night's dream on an ophiclide and you've got the money to buy uh, a, a reproduction instrument and you're going to have some fun with it then do that you know because that's not going to suddenly show up you know and and it may be that you love it so much that you go looking for an original or it may be is that you enjoy it and you find it fun and it's intriguing but that's that's what it is to you and that's great there's no problem with that um mm. that probably really ties in quite quickly to mouthpiece selection um and much like the ensemble and the way we choose our instruments, I tend to choose what feels most comfortable and what suits me the best for the sound I want to make. Um, we were recording two weeks ago for the final bit of a concert that I will tell you about shortly. Um, mm -hmm. And um, we, uh, we looked around the room and our trombone player was playing always on an original 19th century mouthpiece. The horn player was playing on a, always an original uh, 19th century mouthpiece. I was swapping between an original mouthpiece on one of my instruments and a Dennis Wick mouthpiece, which I just find works perfectly on one of my sax instruments. Now, mm. is that sacrilege? You know, <laughs> no, because we're doing a recording and I want to play that instrument and I want to play it as well as I possibly can. Mm -hmm. And that's the mouthpiece that, that does that for me 
Now, some people might have a different opinion on that, but, you know, I, I have to be realistic about the fact that I am paid to play these instruments. And uh, now and again, now and again, not very often, but there are compromises. Uh, and our cornet players were, were the same. There was one fantastic moment where I looked over and one of our cornet players was, was playing on this beautiful, lovely 19th century shaped mouthpiece on, a, on, on an old cornopian. And the other cornet player was playing on my sax cornet on, again, it just happened to be, but a, a brand new Dennis Wick ultra mouthpiece. And we tried so many other mouthpieces, blind testing, and that was the one that just hit the nail on the head. So if you want to play the Ophiclide and you want to play the Ophiclide as well as you can, try some of the reproduction mouthpieces that come with, with reproduction instruments, if you like. Mm-hmm. Try and get hold of some old 19th century mouthpieces. I have lots and some work and some really, really dope. Um, and if you end up playing on a modern mouthpiece, but you love the sound you make and you can get round that piece better than on anything else, for me, that's the way to go. Do for Ophiclide is it generally regarded to play a V cup mouthpiece or does that vary between V and bowl for Yeah, I think again that varies massively. Um I've got a couple of original Ophiclide method books where they specifically look at a a V shape mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. Um and that's the case for both the outer and the inner uh cup of the mouthpiece but i also have some um mouthpieces that look on the outside like they are a sort of blown up french horn mouthpiece a very v cup beautiful um sort of conical mouthpiece and then you look on the inside and they're really deep and Mm -hmm. bulk and uh one of those came with an instrument one of those came with my offy monoclide and um i'm sure it's not the original mouthpiece of course you know the instrument was built in 18 10 or 1820 you know i'm sure it's not the original mouthpiece but it's the mouthpiece that still works the best and sounds the best with it and and uh, i i really do think that if you're going to put yourself in the situation of playing these instruments professionally or even as a great amateur you've got to create the sound that people are expecting to hear Mm -hmm. and for me only ever playing on a historic mouthpiece would be I think a step too far. Although, I, to be the caveat is that I try and do it as much as I can. Yeah, true. <laughs> right. Period. Off a Clyde set at high pitch, or are they closer to four forty? This is another really strange, contentious point. Um, uh, I have to say that the um, the instruments that I have that were retailed uh, in France or certainly Europe, um, are all playable around 440. Hmm. My B-flat Ophiclide uh, is a Gautreaux, but stamped Besson England, so Besson London, uh, which is a retailer's stamp. Um, that was firmly at high pitch B-flat, uh, and it's engraved with a message uh, to its one of its owners. Uh, which is dated 1889. Uh, and in 1889, bands in the UK were playing at high pitch. Um, but all of the sax instruments, all of the sax instruments that I own are playable on or around 440. So this idea that everything 
was played at hugely disparate pitches, either higher or lower. Um, you know, I've, I've turned up for recordings and you think, why has that pitch been, has somebody just picked a pitch out of the hat? Where is the historical, you know, and, and then you look around the brass and everyone's got extensions on their tuning slides and, you know, you're trying to find a piece of gas pipe that extends your serpent vocal long enough. And you think, why, why were these um, numbers just picked out, you know? Um, I can agree that when you're when you're performing with singers, perhaps certain pitches work better and did at the time as well. Um, but a standardised pitch of you know pretty much every instrument that I own um, can be played around 440, which is I, I personally don't think that's coincidence because they're by a lot of different makers and from a lot of different countries. And yet, some of them some of them do go above and below 440, but they're all fairly much I'm, I'm just looking around the room with my instruments in now um and i can see two instruments that would pose problems and need extensions the rest out of a collection of about 50 are are all playable around 440. <laughs> This has been a fantastic conversation. We really can't thank you enough for um, taking the time out of your day to, to speak with us. Uh, where can people go to find out more about Queen Victoria's Consort and the stuff that you guys are doing and, and any up, upcoming projects that you guys have in the works? Um, first point uh, would be the website at www.queenvictoriasconsort.co.uk. That's www.queenvictoriasconsort.co.uk. Um, we've also got a really active facebook page um i think we've really enjoyed interacting with our facebook audience as well as our internet audience in this time of of you know not knowing how to get audiences uh involved um and we've just tried to give a little drip feed of things that people might find interesting and and i have to say that seeing um, at the beginning of this period a year ago, I, I demoed quite a lot of the instruments and realised that all the high instruments needed leaving to to the pros uh, very quickly. <laughs> um, and and recently we've been able to demo some of the uh, some of the higher pitched instruments. Um, and and those videos have been getting multiple thousand um, looks and views uh, very quickly. And we're just so very grateful for all the support that people have given us on Facebook. While we can't get to them in person. And you had mentioned, or or we have seen on Facebook, that there is a performance, and a, a digital performance possibly coming up for the concert. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. We, um, towards the uh, beginning of this lockdown, we really quickly decided that we wanted to try and do something. And, and we were very unsure with all the laws changing quite quickly what we could do. Um, I'm very lucky to be a fellow of Girton College, Cambridge, um, which is a Victorian college. And 
um, unbelievably one of the first colleges to allow um, women to graduate with a degree. Uh, up until then, they could attend uh, an all-women's college at Girton, but not actually be uh, given a degree, which is just appalling. Um, mm-hmm. But but uh, it also coincides beautifully because the building 1869 fits fits our our time period. So we were able to work there under COVID secure conditions in the last lockdown, not, not during this lockdown, but um, we, we, we'd done a couple of recordings. Um, We, we recorded a virtual Christmas card, which sold very well. um, And we put some of the proceeds of that towards recording a larger concert. We also recorded a musical version of a christmas carol which can be seen still on our website as can the christmas card now for free having had so many kind donations we've made that freely available on the website mm-hmm. um and we wanted to put some stuff together into a bigger project um so as of the end of this month when we press the big release button um we will have about an hour long virtual concert that we have both recorded um and edited mainly thanks to Jeremy West in the group who uh, has turned his skills to, to that. Um, and it's a concert that is as close as we could do to a concert as you would see the group. So there are some nice introductions from the members of the group on there. We're wearing our costumes. We've tried to find venues that you might like to look at. Um, we've collaborated with mm-hmm. one of my very good friends who's an actor at Shakespeare's Globe. We've worked together a lot and there's a, there's a poetry reading on there. Uh, and we've collaborated with a historical dance specialist on a Scott Joplin rag. Um, this has not been filmed, you know, like a cinema release. It's been filmed in people's back gardens and and on some very good filming equipment and very good recording equipment. But it's a very human concert and I'm incredibly proud of it and just can't wait to get it out there. Um, we have done that only because we've had some amazing support through our GoFundMe campaign, uh, which is still running and is easily accessible on the front page of our website. And the great thing about a virtual concert, having not been able to visit the US yet with the group, is that, of course, we can send it to you guys. It's as simple as clicking on a link and you'll get the concert as well. So, um, and, and all we're asking, we, we're fully aware that COVID has uh, really put pay to a lot of people's plans but also a lot of people's income um Mm -hmm. that we're going to give this concert away if if somebody can donate five dollars or ten dollars or you know whatever they can that's great uh but if they can't we don't mind we just want them to enjoy the group and luckily through other people's generosity um we can do that um and we've raised just shy of two thousand pounds now and we're hoping to get to two and a half by the release date but um that'll mean that all of our venues have been paid uh we've been paid as musicians um because we do this as a living and Mm -hmm. apart from my work with the ensemble um covid has stopped every other piece of work that i'm doing and we're still unfortunately in the uk having cancellations rather than bookings um Mm -hmm. it's i I don't want to get down about it because you know it's a massive emotional roller coaster but um Mm -hmm we are still at the point where bookings are coming out of diaries rather than going into diaries. And Mm -hmm. we've got a sort of end in sight, we hope through the vaccine and all the wonderful work that our our, uh, health services have provided, but that's not just going to be a date in the diary where everyone suddenly can afford to 
yeah. hire Queen Victoria's consort again. So yeah. what we want to do is we just want to give people a time to say, hey, yeah, I've got an hour free or, hey, I've got 10 minutes free uh, and then I can watch the rest later. And uh, there's no obligation, but those few donations don't half make a difference. <laughs> well, thank you again so much, Andy, for coming on to the show. It was awesome being able to pick your brain about Ophiclides and early brass and, and learn even more uh, about Queen Victoria's consort. I've been following you guys online for a while now, and it, it was awesome to, to hear a lot of your behind-the-scenes kind of uh, – historical stuff about the the group so thank you so much sure and if i could just say one thing um if anybody has listened to this and wants to reach out about the ophiclide or the serpent or historic brass if they're if they're a player looking to get into it or 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 a player who wants to take their playing to the next level i'd be very very happy to to hear from them the, the one good thing about this situation is that i do have time and I'm very happy to hear from people and can get to speak to wonderful and enthusiastic fine chaps like yourself it's been an absolute pleasure thank you again so much to andrew kershaw for coming on to the early american brass band podcast and celebrating one year of the show with steven and i it was really awesome getting to talk about uh, his experience over there in the uk and to learn a little bit more about the history of the ophiclite so thank you yeah, we're uh, really, really happy that he could take the time out of his day and, and speak with us. And we're grateful for his enthusiasm about all things Ophiclide and, uh, you know, 19th century brass instruments. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you're hearing, uh, as we always say, uh, at the top and the end, we have a Patreon and a Teespring. Uh, those are the two best ways to support uh, the show and defray some of the production costs. Um, but we're also up on all social media platforms and our YouTube channel. If you subscribe to that, it really helps spread the show to more ears. And that's the ultimate goal is to spread this as far as we can. So we hope that you'll check that out along with our website uh, for resources and show notes for every single episode that we do. This episode's featured album is a little bit different. Queen Victoria's Consort does not yet have a album that we can use as the featured album, but on their website they do have a number of video clips from uh, past performances. So what we're going to do is on our show notes, uh, which will have links and uh, resources related to this episode already, but at the bottom of this week's show notes we will include a direct link to that video section of Queen Victoria Consort's website and you'll be able to listen and watch uh, that fantastic ensemble perform some great music there. So we hope you'll go over to our show notes on our website and check that out. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Early American Brass Band Podcast, and we will see you next time.